On October 20, 1947, a congressional committee began hearings on un-American activities in the movie industry. People with unpopular political opinions were accused of subversion and lost their jobs. They were blacklisted. From Hollywood, the blacklist spread to businesses and universities, institutions and communities across the country. Thousands became the targets of denunciations, suspicion, and fear. This is the story of one man and his family and their life under the blacklist for 15 years. Blacklisted, episode five, How I Killed Hugh G. Foster. Dear friends, greetings from Igloo number 487. A big tank truck is outside, piping in the winter supply of seal blubber for the furnace. The sled dogs are beginning to stir, and I take back every nasty crack I ever made about Manchester, New Hampshire. By the winter of 1955, my family had settled in with my mother's father on the bottom floor of his house at 200 Prospect Street, Manchester, New Hampshire. My father, Gordon, went straight to work, setting up his typewriter in a small room in the back over the driveway, the coldest corner of the house, barely big enough, as he used to joke, to swing an idea. The weather had turned so brutal that except to borrow a car to take my mother shopping or mail one more manuscript to an agent, my father barely left the house. It may help explain why, after months of looking, the FBI still hadn't found it. The New York office will conduct investigation at Poughkeepsie, where his brother resides, to determine if Khan has visited or is residing there. It is also noted that Mrs. Khan has relatives living at Manchester, New Hampshire. Helene, I can't ask another thing of you. J. Edgar Hoover had had my father under surveillance for over 11 years by now as a leftist Hollywood screenwriter, a suspected Communist Party member, and an outspoken enemy of the House and American Activities Committee. Hoover knew that my father had lost his income to a blacklist in Hollywood and his savings to a crooked businessman in Mexico. Now my father was back in the country, Hoover was eager to find out how he was getting by, where, and as whom. Aye. Collect them, swap them. In the new family size reusable jars. Ever, dear Lucy, some old friends in New York have put me in the way of making a buck by writing for television. The real craggy part of the job is to collect for it. The whole operation is under such heavy wraps that they will probably pay me off with a bill of exchange on the Yokohama Specie Bank. Of course, I had to use another name, Norman Best. Now I have to maintain a filing cabinet to keep up with my own noms de plume. Yours, on the threshold of insolvency, Rock Shapiro, the Yankee philosopher. Can you handle a sword, Cheryl? I have handled one in my time. I'd been studying television myself. After spending half my life in Mexico, I was eager to catch up with America. By the end of two weeks, I knew all the jingles and program schedules by heart. Pony! 
The only thing I still needed to feel assimilated, I figured, was a furnished basement. The most popular kids in my sixth grade class had basement rec rooms with couches, a pool table, and a dancing floor. All we had in our basement was a boiler and my grandfather, I.A. Brody, who, to make room for us upstairs, had built himself a small bedroom near the furnace. A big, soft-spoken man in his 70s, my grandfather was a leading member of Manchester's Jewish community and a frequent letter writer to the ultra-conservative local newspaper, the Manchester Union Leader. Sometimes I'd watch the two men at the kitchen table, my father, short and small-boned, in his monocle and natty jacket and goatee, and my grandfather towering over him in his workman's clothes Pass the bread, Gordon, and wonder if there had ever been two people less alike. But the two had much in common. They both immigrated to America. My father is a young boy from Hungary in 1902. My grandfather is a young man from Russia in 1904. They'd both risen from poverty, and they both knew from experience that there was nothing more bitter than living under someone else's thumb. To the editors, once Confucius found a woman whose family had been devoured by tigers. Why, he asked her, do you dwell in such a terrible place? Because, she answered, there is no oppressive ruler. Take note, students, said Confucius. Oppressive rule is worse than a tiger. I A. Brody. Though it wasn't true for my father, things in 1956 were easing up for some blacklisted writers. Many of the writers named and ruined as Reds were working again in the shadows under other names or other arrangements that kept their employers from being seen with them. One of them, Dalton Trumbo, who had served a year in jail rather than cooperate with the House and American Activities Committee, was now so busy in Hollywood, he'd almost single-handedly inspired the rumor that blacklisted writers were writing every current box office success. Great Khan, you may be cast among unbelievers in that stony northern land, but one subject at least thinks of you in the days of your glory and addresses you as always, Hariba Allah, and curse the infidel. Trumbo. But to the great Khan, stuck by bad luck and bad health in a place he called the icebox of America, Hollywood and opportunity seem far away. December 23rd, end of year counts. Income for 1956. Article for Nugget, 135. Article for Esquire, 360. Robin Hood rerun, 250. Article on Matches, 135. Remained in bed entire day, taking the usual series of pills. Finally at night, took additional Milltown and slept disturbed by horrible dreams. His main consolation, at least, was that he'd be left alone to bring in the little he could. He was wrong. That January, a member of my grandfather's congregation met secretly with an investigator from the office of Louis C. Wyman, attorney general of the state of New Hampshire, and informed them a communist named Gordon Kahn was living in the house of I.A. Brody. Confidential, 
Hoover had found his man again. The office of the Attorney General Wyman reports the subject resides at 200 Prospect Street, Manchester, and spends all his time writing and is seldom seen out of the house. Right. Following is a physical description of Khan. Age 54, wears elevator shoes, monocle, and has goatee. Make sure that surveillance is vigorous and thorough, though an interview is not considered advisable. I'd love it, Gordon. I've never really gone away with you on a holiday since we were married. Do you realize that? Early that April, two weeks before my 11th birthday, in the middle of lunch, my father was handed a subpoena from the New Hampshire Committee to investigate subversive activities. No. It was a complete surprise. My father hadn't faced an investigative committee in almost 10 years. If he feared anything, it was the House and American Activities Committee in Washington, not a state official in New Hampshire. Even worse, the penalty in New Hampshire for a conviction of subversion was 20 years in jail. It was starting again. The surveillance from cars parked across the street the certainty the phone was tapped, the dirty looks from neighbors and school teachers and store owners, the fear of being seen with us. A spot surveillance of 200 Prospect Street, Manchester, New Hampshire, at approximately 11.35 on 4.27.56 revealed the car's license plate is LK881. What did the lawyer say? The judge won't quash the subpoena. He thinks I should plead the fifth. But what have you done? You go to the library, you take me to the market, you go to the barbers, you go to the temple. He has no right. Wyman can do whatever he wants. What did we ever do to him? To prepare for questioning, my father reread Hollywood on Trial, the book he'd written about the House and American Activities Committee hearings in Hollywood nearly a decade before. And all his troubles began. Are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It is perfectly clear to me, gentlemen, that if you continue in this uh, particular Mr. fashion, you, direct the you have only one In October of 1947, the committee had subpoenaed my father and 18 other so-called unfriendly witnesses as part of its investigation of communist influences in the motion picture industry. Now, we, we'll do the same thing For refusing to answer the committee's questions, 10 of them went to prison for contempt of Congress. Everybody sit down. Those like my father, who hadn't been called at the time, were blacklisted anyway and hadn't worked under their own name since. These committees know that the only way to trick the American people into abandoning their rights and liberties is to manufacture an imaginary danger to frighten the people into accepting repressive laws which are supposedly for their protection. If in full flight from any principle he might possess, a man went and recanted every decent thing he believed in to them, it wouldn't be enough. They'd want to know who else. Now that you are purged, who else? Give us names, dates, and places. Could he live with himself for a minute after he did a thing like that? Could he face his children? If he had ever joined the Communist Party, it was nobody's business but his own. He wouldn't even tell me he would certainly refuse to cooperate with Wyman. 
His lawyer advised him to come to the hearing ready to make $2,500 bail. Dear Inez, a rather serious situation has come up which I did not think in the least possible now that I have been away from California for years. He wrote his former business manager to see what he could get on his life insurance policy. Since it is a matter in which my children will be affected as well, I thought it would be a good idea to convert some of their bonds, which have already reached their 10-year maturity, as ever, Gordon. He also tried to sell whatever scripts he had. If you like the enclosed material, I can't foresee much haggling about its price. Fondest regards, Norman Best. That June, in a small office on the third floor of the State House in Concord, New Hampshire, my father appeared with his lawyer before New Hampshire Attorney General Louis Wyman and two of Wyman's investigators at a meeting from which he had little hope of leaving a free man. Are you a member of the Communist Party? The questions went on for two hours. Some were aimed at his past, some at his political intentions, do you advocate the overthrow of the government of the state of New Hampshire by force or violence, if necessary? And some, at what was left of his career. Do you have any pen names, Mr. Kahn? My father refused to answer. To his amazement, Wyman let him go. The Supreme Court was reviewing a case on the constitutionality of state committees like Wyman's, until it ruled Wyman announced that he would not hold my father in contempt. As I learned years later when I read my father's FBI files, Wyman might have had other reasons for going easy as well. Inspector Gall of Wyman's office informs us Khan claims to be suffering from a heart condition. Gall doesn't know whether or not this affliction is real or merely a stall. However, he is proceeding cautiously inasmuch as a heart attack during or after Khan's examination by his office would be embarrassing. Security check on Khan's doctor. That uh, was negative. negative. That fall, my father regularly took the bus to New York where he'd stay with relatives and friends to research new articles and develop contacts at magazines. Dear Trumbo, God's Supo, in four months I've made just about what I used to clear in Hollywood in two weeks. Oh, why wasn't I born a shit so that I could get back on the titty? Just answer their questions, that's all. All right, so my kids will spit in my eye. So they'll spit, so I'll wipe. Ugh. Poverty says an old saying which I have lying around. Poverty becometh a Jew, as scarlet reigns become a white horse. Yours, dragged in the wake of a lorry, but as ever devotedly, Gordon. Dear Lucy, for others, it says in the travel folders, the world is shrinking, and no place is more than eight hours from another. But for me, it seems to be expanding like Einstein's universe. And I am on one distant star of the ninth magnitude. Letters used to keep me in some sort of rapport with you and other friends, but my despair is so total that I've lost the touch of writing below the glossy surface of magazines. And it can be dull, 
when there's nobody around to read something to or get an occasional opinion to say nothing of the stimulation that comes from agreeable society. Still, the glass mountain has got to be climbed until I have earned a break. I don't mean earned money-wise, as they say on Madison Avenue, but earned in the sense that now I owe myself a period of surcease. I will persevere. While he was on one of his trips to New York, I come across his copy of Hollywood on Trial. I was riveted. Some of the politics in it were over my head, but the story was vivid and clear. Around the time I was two, there had been an enormous battle between the House and American Activities Committee and its opponents in Hollywood about what it meant to be an American. And one of the committee's fiercest enemies had been Gordon Kahn. The freedom from fear advocated by Franklin D. Roosevelt is changing in America to a fear of freedom. The showdown cannot be far ahead. We have seen the pattern of a mental straitjacket, police opinion in a policed state. We are being invited to try it on, just for size. We must reject it in the name of the America that we have always known and the liberty our children have a right to inherit from us. The alternative is hardly conceivable. So this was Gordon Kahn. But where was he now? Gone for good or buried alive in Hugh G. Foster? A man who wouldn't discuss his past, wouldn't let me read what he had written till it had been sold, and actively discouraged any interest I showed in growing up to be a writer like him. The man behind the door. February 1, 1958. Took a nitromatol and a tablet to keep me going for the morning. We'll have another electrocardiogram to see if there is any change from the last. I need oxygen. That spring, for my 12th birthday, I got to spend a week with my father in New York. My father was staying at the time in the east side townhouse of his friend, the New York Times theater caricaturist, Al Hirschfeld, and his wife, Dolly, while they were away in South America. He looked happy. After abandoning the faltering TV career of Norman Best, he'd concentrated on the magazine career of Hugh G. Foster, and the effort was paying off. Three of Foster's pieces had already been published, and several others were in the works. That week, my father took me to the Lower East Side in Avenue C, where he'd grown up, to the museums where he'd gone as a kid, to the newspaper office where he'd started as a reporter, to the public library where he apparently spent a lot of time. Good to see you, Mr. Kahn. We went to the United Nations to see a meeting of the General Assembly and to a midtown seafood restaurant he'd just written about for Holiday Magazine for lobsters on the house. It's good to see you again, Mr. Foster. My father was celebrating. Foster had just sold two new pieces of fiction to Playboy magazine. He confided there'd been a hitch. Playboy ran thumbnail sketches of each issue's contributors on the inside cover page. When Foster's agents told the editors Foster was a newcomer and camera shy, Playboy got suspicious. Something was fishy. My father and his agent had to come up with an explanation fast. 
They'd phone back saying Foster was a cover name for a seasoned professional writer, all right, who just divorced his third wife. If she found out he was making money again writing for Playboy, she'd sue him for everything he had left. Why didn't you say so, said the editor, and dropped the matter then and there. Pretty crafty, I said, trying to sound mature. It's like the hounds and the fox. The hounds and the fox. The hounds run for their lunch. The fox runs for his life. (laughs) Al and Dolly came back that weekend, and my father threw them a welcome home party with some of their oldest friends. Mother came down from Manchester, and my father cooked a meal. And now prepare to infuse the paprika. One heaping teaspoonful of the noble powder sprinkled in a little at a time. The man who uncomplainingly ate tasteless salt-free food for his heart condition in Manchester apparently was also a gourmet cook. I recognized many of the guest names from the books in my father's library. S.J. Perlman, Lillian Hellman, Dorothy Parker, Patty Chayefsky, Ogden Nash, and from their pictures in newspapers and magazines. I'm a man of a thousand faces, all of them blacklisted. Zero Mostel and Jack Hilford, Lottie Lenya, Salvador Dali. No wonder my father called New Hampshire New Siberia. New Hampshire's opposed to the elections this year. They're happy with the man they've got, Coolidge. (laughs) Dalton Trumbo had recently won an Oscar for a screenplay he'd written under the pseudonym of Robert Rich, and few in the business were pretending not to know. If Kirk Douglas, who had just paid Dalton to write his next movie, Spartacus, had the guts to give him screen credit, the blacklist for Trumbo would be over. We did it. Someone asked my father what the first movie would be he'd want to write under his own name. Forget movies, Gordon, someone said. Make it a book, like Hollywood on Trial, about what it's been like for you. My father said he had the title already. He was going to call it How I Killed Hugh G. Foster. My father was in great form that night. Al told me that in the 20s, before going to Hollywood, my father had been one of the most colorful characters in New York, a top reporter and columnist, the chief rewrite man of the Daily Mirror, an acquaintance of Legs Diamond and Houdini, and the only Jew in Manhattan to wear a monocle and wear it well. Even when he didn't have money, Al said, my father had style. Earlier that day, my father had had them picked up at the pier in a Rolls Royce. God knows what had Gordon pulled that one out of, Al said. It wasn't one of mine. (laughs) Later, after the guests left, I heard the story of how my father and mother had met. Friday, May 30, 1930. Special delivery. Dear Barbara, I thought of you very often in the three years since I saw you and asked about you as often as I dared. It had been in a group of mutual friends during one of my mother's trips to New York from New Hampshire in the 20s. He'd been so tired after a double shift at the mirror that moments after being introduced to her, he'd fallen asleep on her shoulder on the way to Coney Island in the backseat of their friend's crowded car. Three years later, My father found out her address in Manchester where she was a school teacher and out of the blue reintroduced himself to her in a letter and followed with a special delivery letter every day. Dear Al, her name is Barbara. She is a Master of Arts and a Phi Beta Kappa from Radcliffe. She is beautiful and talented and outside of that she has few attributes. 
He told Al that from the moment he'd seen her, he knew she was the one he wanted to marry. To a poor kid from Hungary whose father tanned hides and whose mother scrappled for dimes, she seemed like royalty. He took me to West Point. He took me to the theater. He took me everywhere. And you know, of course, I was delighted. I was having a marvelous time. So he takes us to meet his family. You were so nervous, Gordon. I think he was embarrassed they were living on the Lower East Side. It was a roadster, you know, with the top down. And he got in, I got in, my father got in. So he started off, and he heads off in the opposite direction to Coney Island. <laughs> and then the door flew open, and father nearly fell out. <laughs> oh, this young man I'd seen only once three years before. You know, darling, I've often wondered whether if I had just gone into New York and walked by you without knowing that you were there, and you not knowing whether I would have even recognized you. I've often wondered about that. We stayed at Alan Dolly's that night before going back to Manchester. Happy birthday, darling. After Mother turned off my light and wished me happy birthday, I remember. Don't grow up too fast. She lingered in my room, looking out the window at New York. June 16, 1930. Barbara, dear, last night I talked to you, although you didn't hear me, on the stillness of Lake Oscawana. And I said, did you miss my letter today? Well, don't worry, dear. I'll tell you what I would have said, had I written, and more. Then I sang Melancholy Baby. <laughs> the tawdry enough ballad, but I love it. Do you remember the words of the chorus? Come to me, my melancholy baby. No one had told me, but even with his newfound success that year, Hughie Foster had made less than $2,000. My father and mother had agreed that mother would have to look for work. The Manchester public school system had offered her a job as a substitute the coming fall, and my father had gone along with it. Still, it must have hurt. For all his leftist politics, he'd always been a man of the old school and had wanted to be her sole support. What he didn't know, and she'd just told him, was that her job had fallen through. A friend in the superintendent's office had been brave enough to tell her why. Mother had been blacklisted, too. She was married to Gordon Kahn. She'd have to keep looking until she found a place that didn't know her name. Or else I shall be Two weeks later, while I was watching TV at home, my mother came into the room with a stranger. I got up to shake his hand when she said, don't you recognize your father? Without announcing it, my father had walked into his office bathroom and shaved off the beard he had worn nearly all my life. All through lunch, I could barely keep from staring at him. He wouldn't look me in the eye. A few days later, a box of 500 gummed return address labels arrived at the house made out to Hugh G. Foster, 200 Prospect Street, Manchester, New Hampshire. Enough to last a lifetime. I was used to Hugh G. Foster's new face now and beginning to understand why he still preferred to look away. He had killed Gordon Kahn. 
Blacklisted, Episode 5, How I Killed Hugh G. Foster, was performed by Ron Liebman as Gordon Kahn, Stockard Channing as Barbara Kahn, Carol O'Connor as J. Edgar Hoover, and Tony Kahn as the narrator. The cast also featured Jerry Stiller, Josh Mostel, Spalding Gray, John Randolph, Kevin McLaughlin, Patricia Bosworth. Your announcer is Will Lyman. Blacklisted was produced, written, and directed by Tony Kahn. Co-producer for Blacklisted is Harriet Risen. Associate producers are Sonny Dufo, Spencer Weisbroth, and Eileen Silverstone. Major funding for this program came from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with additional support from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Massachusetts Foundation for the Humanities, and the Threshold Foundation. This podcast of Blacklisted is sponsored by Audible.com, where you can download over 40,000 audiobooks, magazines, radio shows, and more. To download a free audiobook today, go to audible.com.